Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. Hi, this is Jason Roundsville, and welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Dylan Ray. And we have special guest from Knock On, um, John. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Good, man. Real good. Super glad to have you. Uh, just so, just so our listeners have an idea, give us a, a bio for you. Oh, uh, dang. Just a, a um, you better make it brief. <laughs> You've got a lot of stuff going on, so maybe you better just give us a Cliff Notes version. Well, uh, I guess I'm kind of the face to knock on archery or depending on, you know, if you're an Instagram person, you probably know me as knock on TV. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, really just a brand focused on education, um, you know, really engaging content and trying to educate bow hunters and archers alike. And, and also really focus on trying to customize, you know, archery equipment according to things that I personally use in the field and I think can make bow hunters better. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I like it. There's, I, I'm one of the guys that probably really needs that because I'm, I grab a bow. I let somebody who knows way more about bows, you know, tune it up and then I just take it out in the woods. And so I could probably, I'm one of the guys who could probably really learn a lot because, because my, my knowledge on that is, is, pretty low but i love that you're basically your goal is to get more people out you know doing archery and shooting and hunting and and making them better at their sport yeah that's always been a passion of mine i started out 
as a bow hunter in the deep South, um, down in, you know, the Mississippi Delta, to be honest, and, um, ended up, my family moved up to the Midwest, uh, West of Chicago out in the Western suburbs and, uh, really got in to deer and Turkey and waterfowl out there. And, um, originally had plans to, to play football, like probably most high school boys and, uh, ended up deciding to not pursue college football in order to work for this archery shop for four bucks an hour. And then one thing led to another and started, um, started competing, kind of got bit by the bug of how bad I sucked at archery. Once I went to a, an actual archery tournament range and then just really made it a passion to get better at archery on a target field so that I would be a better bow hunter. And that was really always my drive is to be a target archer. So I could be a better bow hunter. And, um, through that endeavor, you know, I worked in an archer shop and competed a lot and then ended up deciding, um, after a pretty short time, I actually decided to turn pro went pro. And at the same time, uh, right when I was 18, went to work for Matthews, um, worked internally there for about nine years or so. And then, uh, left and ventured out on my own and, uh, shot with the U S archery team shot, you know, hundreds of professional events and, um, started working independently. And at that time, one of the people was Hoyt and I was with Hoyt for 10 years and the, the brand knock on, uh, was created as a way to have a platform to educate bow hunters for not only, um, hunting, but also how to be better, archers around the clock and just all the aspects of that, whether it's, you know, trying to be a better wild game cook or, you know, I'm really passionate about fitness too. And so it, it just, uh, really started to take shape, but the priority has always been bow hunting for me. Can I say that I, I I've always appreciated that about you. Um, you know, one of our, uh, one of the guys on our board, Jim Willems, uh, he said that he said one time, he said, I, I feel like the art of bow hunting has disappeared. And what he meant, you know, what it means by that is nobody, nobody thinks about their broadheads anymore, their arrow flight or their, their tuning of their bow. They just go out and shoot. And, uh, and so I've always appreciated that, uh, that you kind of get back to the art of bow hunting yeah. and creating that art in bow hunting master becoming the master of your craft. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done it unintentionally if i'm honest it's just um i'm very very hyper focused as a person and i'm it's it's really hard for me to shut off all the time i don't sleep a lot just because you know i fall asleep from kind of exhaustion and then i as soon as my brain thinks of something i either could be doing or should be doing then i'm kind of already up for the day and then go about my routine but one of the things that I learned was everything I learned as a bow hunter was hand me down knowledge from family who shot, who shot archery. And my uncle was, you know, one of the bigger stewards, my uncle, and my grandfather to the hunting side. And then my dad got me more involved with, he recognized how much I loved archery. So it took me to some archery clubs and stuff. Um, but I just, I realized pretty quick how bad I was at it. And so I had to really self-teach and learn a lot of things um, of what I was doing wrong. And funny enough, 
ever since the very beginning, um, the very first column that I had for writing, because I've, I've done a tremendous amount of writing over the years for most publications, but the very first writing column I had was called Rookie on Tour. And it was mainly because um, this tournament magazine, I was actually hanging out in their booth um, after the shoot. And it was, it was after my very first rookie tournament. And they said, well, how did it go? And I just told them, you know, how it went, just was already recognizing, you know, things I needed to do different things I should do. And she's like, she goes, man, you seem like you are so specific about all these things. It would be really neat if you were to document it and write a column so that people who are shooting archery for the first time at a tournament can kind of follow along. So my very first column was rookie on tour. So every tournament I wrote about, you know, how I prepared for the event and then what happened at the event and then what I was taking away from it as preparation for the next. And so it's always been for me, it was always trial and error, you know, doing a lot of stuff wrong and slowly picking the brain of people like, you know, Randy Almer or the chapel brothers, you know, back in the, in the day and just, um, you know, Frank Pearson was another one, uh, who was an early coach, Tim Strickland, and all these people were just giving me these little nuggets that I would like dirty piece of gold. And I would have to just like clean this thing off and I would just have to work at it so much. So all of a sudden I would show up and have this shiny new thing in my quiver that would help me gain points on the competition. And, um, and then the better I got at tournament archery, the better I got as a bow hunter, simply because if, if I'm honest, I've told people a lot, one of the best ways to combat buck fever is what I refer to as climate, you know, climate, climatation. So I just try to climatize that nervous energy and nervous pressure simply by doing it a lot. You know, it's, it's a lot like, you know, I don't know the very first time you climb a tree when you're a kid, you know, you go to the first limb and you think, holy crap, am I high? And then by the time you get up on that same limb three or four times, now you're up to the third or fourth. And, you know, I guess another way to refer to it is, look, you know, all my old predecessors down in the Mississippi Delta with their climbing stands, you know, we used to get up at 15 feet. Now some of those suckers will be up 30 feet and uh, don't think nothing of it. So, you know, I always looked at it as when I was in those pressure situations as a tournament archer, um, it, it really started to, to let me control those, that nervous energy. And I was able to start channeling that and also just started to learn how the brain works and, you know, started to work with sports psychologists and stuff like that, where I could perform better in a high pressure tournament situation for high dollars. And then when I got to the hunting realm, it was just way easier because one, I dealt with pressure for eight months previous for all the tournaments that I had shot. And then also, um, it just kind of seemed like, you know, pulling back and making one shot on a deer was nothing when there were times where you're making one shot on a foam deer for 
10 or 15 grand, you know, it just, uh, made hunting easier for me. And then that was really just all it took. And it's just been building block after building block from there. Nice. Now, just so people have an idea when you were at, go back to that first tournament and you're coming in, you're doing the rookie on tour. What were some of those initial, um, items that you picked up where you're like, you know what, I really need to focus on this and I need to change that. What were some of the, the fundamentals, the original ones that you kind of focused on? Well, the original one, the first one, um, I actually had to leave after about an hour because I was out of arrows. I had to drive to a gander mountain and buy more arrows. And honestly, being kind of a, being kind of a natural, what's that? Shout out to gander mountain. Am I right? (laughs) Oh yeah, man. I, I still remember to the day going to that place, just mad as a hornet too. Cause like I said, I was. I was an athlete and honestly, I've always been somewhat of a natural athlete. A lot of my, you know, my dad and my uncle and, uh, they're very gifted athletes and my, and my grandfather. Um, so I actually had never really been defeated as bad as I did the first time I went to a 3d range. And, you know, that was, that was a big wake up call for me. And I went and and got more arrows came back. And by the time I finished, I finished that last 10 or 15 targets by myself because everybody was done. And I just told myself, this is never going to happen again. again. Yeah. And the next day I went to a, I went to a local archery shop where all of the people who were wearing these shooter shirts, you know, they had these, the name of the shop on the back and so on Monday morning, I was in that shop and just kind of just being a weirdo stalking these people and just started asking questions. But yeah, it was the first, the first big eye opener was just the fact that I was, um, I was a bow hunter. And again, from the Mississippi Delta, you know, I was there with, you know, a really old golden key arrow rest with with enough felt on that thing to prevent any type type of proper arrow flight. Um, I was very much a practice on bales of hay and paper plates kind of person, you know, never shooting at scoring rings or even knowing where they were. I also always just stepped off targets. So, you know, my pins were based on 20 steps, 30 steps, and, you know, big old kisser button and a hula hoop for a peep sight and a, you know, a wrist strap and, you know, going out on that 3d range with, you know, five different types of arrows, you know, every one that I found at a hunting camp that, you know, were long enough. Uh, it was just a complete shit show if I'm honest. And I learned, you know, Hey, in order to be repetitive, your equipment needs to be repetitive. So I really focused on just getting my equipment straightened out, you know, and, and just having someone show me, you know, going to a shop for the first time that like set up my bow properly. And, you know, I bought a dozen arrows that matched and, and that was kind of the basis. And then from there, if you fast forward into some of the tournaments, The real thing that stood out more than anything and really probably the foundation of everything that knock on is about was 
uh, Randy Ulmer came up to me after a tournament and I was, I was a semi pro at the time. And I had, I had very good days and then I would just have these terrible days, but it was always like top of the chart, bottom of the chart, top of the chart, you know? So when you came off the range, people would, you know, Hey kid, how'd you shoot? And I would say, Oh man, I, you know, freaking shot unbelievable today. I'm in the lead or whatever. And then the next day, you know, Hey, did you win this thing? No, I've, damn, I shot, you know, I missed one and shot a couple fives and, you know, it was just this straight up, straight down. And there were times where I shot with Ulmer and some pro-ams where I was the amateur in his group. And so he would see times where when I was shooting good, he's like, okay, this is a, this kid shoots good. But then he could also see when I got nervous and, you know, had target anticipation and punched the trigger, he recognized, you know, Hey, that's, that's your problem. So he came up to me at the end of my, uh, semi pro year and said, listen, kid, you have the potential to be one of the best archers out here, but until you stop slamming that release or anticipating when your pin, when your shot's going to go off based on where your pin is until you fix that, you're never going to be consistent. And he said, and that's really what you're missing is you're missing the consistency of being able to shoot the, the same all the time, whether it's being a great shooter or a good shooter, you, you don't know because you're always either awesome or suck. So he gave me a, um, is that a, a back- quote? Is that a direct <laughs> quote from Rand? I don't know. He was probably way nicer about it. And there was yeah. probably way less words, yeah. uh, you know, with, with Ulmer, it was kind of like seeing a unicorn. Um, if Randy, if Randy threw you a nugget, you know, you were kind of smelling all this pixie dust that was kind of making you high at the time. So you'd have to wait for him to leave. And then you would kind of try to remember what the hell he just told you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he he gave me my first back tension release and told me if you can figure out how to shoot this release without knowing when your shot's going to go off and starting to just and start to trust your ability to to let your pin be on the target he said then i think you're going to be a whole different person and sure enough that winter um i went back to wisconsin and just made it a mission of I'm going to try to learn how to shoot this thing and, you know, struggled with it, had the yips, had some target anticipation, but I still remember the first time where I drew back, looked through my peep, put that pin on the target and just kept pulling back and pulling back and just letting that pin move around and not freaking out about it. And that release just going off with a total surprise and then seeing that arrow just go right into the 12 ring it was supposed to. And it was very vivid. That that memory was very vivid and I can still see it to this day. And it was just this switch that went off of, now that is what a good archery shot is supposed to feel like. And from there on, that's always been my bar. And rather than score myself based on paper, I I've always just started scoring myself based off. How did my, how did my last shot feel compared to that shot that day? And, you know, if I can come off the range with 90% of my shots where I can say they were good shots, 
then good things are going to happen. And that's always been, you know, what I've strived for is just trying to make as many shots at that quality or better. And there's been a lot of little nuances as I've, you know, as I've grown that have helped me get closer to that. And that's really what we're all about is, is, is teaching all these different things that I've come across that help people get to that point sooner. Yeah, that's nice. And then, then you get to see how far somebody can come in a, in a relatively short amount of time or, or on the flip side, how far they can't come in a long (laughs) amount of time. You ever found somebody that is just hopeless that you're just like, you know what? Uh, have have you thought about shooting trap or, or maybe rifles? Or yeah. Well, I actually really, I love shooting, um, firearms. Mm-hmm. I'm in this really strange, like, uh, I don't know. I'm in, I'm in this strange position of as much as I want to shoot firearms and I really love the precision to it. Um, I also don't want to, to dilute what we're doing on the archery side. So I'm a little bit reserved about it, but I can tell you if I ever need to just like let my mind go from archery, you know, I'll go and, and do some handgun stuff or some rifle stuff. And to be totally honest, it's very easy for me to be, to be good according to people that do that every day and they watch and, and kind of say like, dang, you hardly ever, you don't shoot much. And I'm like, no, but I just feel like because there's so much more movement with a bow and because my trigger control is, you know, as good as it's ever been in my life. Um, I just feel like, you know, with a gun and the, especially the types of scopes and calibrations they have right now, it's, it's just a matter of trusting your float and waiting for a surprise shot. So it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty fun to do that. Nice. Yeah. I'm, Usually when uh, I pick up a gun, they say the same thing, but with different tone. Oh yeah. You don't shoot much. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I've had a couple buddies where I'm like, man, maybe you should try something else. <laughs> John, I got a question. Uh, when you're, so when you're teaching a new, a new archer, um, how do you get them to that, to that back tension result as quick as possible? Well, I've really boiled down, um, the shot routine that I teach archers is very boiled down because what I've found, um, kind of inadvertently is that so many of the things that I teach, which I teach five specific points, which, are all fundamental in just proper archery posture and, um, and pro and, and what you need to have to have proper arrow flight. So I've just really boil it down to like, what are things that affect that affect people shooting poorly, um, when it comes to archery. And the very first thing is, you know, your stance, um, because your stance has, has such a variation to two things, really one, your, your feet have a very direct connection to your brain. And, you know, just like if you've had one too many and you're kind of stumbling around a little bit, you know, if you kind of slipping up with your feet, your brain knows, Whoa, dude, you're all over the place. So uh, when you're, 
when your feet aren't stable and your feet aren't happy, then what happens is your front bow hand is going to also show movement because quite fr frankly, you're either digging in with your toes or pushing back with your heels or your stance is too narrow to where, you know, just physics and, you know, the width of your shoulders versus a very narrow stance, you know, just has you leaning one way or the other. So stance is very critical to the movement you see and the movement people see in their front pin has a very, very direct correlation with how itchy their trigger finger gets. When people are moving around a lot, it's really hard for people to not start to try to make the shot happens when they're moving by the target or they try to just lock up and freeze as tight as possible. And for most people, they end up freezing under the target and then eventually they just have to lift the, lift their their sight pin up and punch the trigger at the same time, which are horrible habits. The other thing is your shoulders, you know, if you imagine a drone looking at yourself directly over the top, um, your shoulder position start to affect the really a triangle between your, the back of your shoulder blades to your front bow hand to your back elbow. So if you, sh if you close off your stance, meaning if you're trying to point towards a target, you know, shooting as a bow hunter, and if your front foot is forward of your back foot, then what happens is you start to close off that, that triangle gets very narrow when looking at it over the top and you bring your front shoulder into the line of that string or very close to it, which then you run the risk, especially as a bow hunter hitting your sleeve. Once you have some hunting clothes on, um, also once your front shoulder starts coming forward, it's not able to stay down and forward in that pocket. Once you bring it too far forward, it naturally creeps back. So people start to have a very high shoulder where you can see it's pressing against their neck. And a lot of people that have neck issues from archery is really in relation to their shoulder position. And a lot of times that has a direct relation to where your torso is, is directed based on where your feet are. So, you know, I really look at stance first, making sure your feet, you know, look right, meaning your front toe should not be uh, ahead of your back toe. Your front toe should, should at least be parallel, if not a few inches behind your rear toe. Um, so that's like, does it look right? And then does it feel right? Do I feel stable or is this shot forcing me to, you know, if you're on a tree stand and that thing's not level and your toes are pointing down three inches, it's a lot like making a golf shot where you, you know, where your toes are pointing downhill. You're that is like destined for a slice, right? Your toes are pointing down. And as you come through, you're like going right. So you're going to feel like you're swaying all the time. So just looking at your stance, does it look right? Does it feel right? The second thing is your grip position. The first thing and last thing to determine the path of the arrow is, is your front bow hand. So your front bow hand is the first thing to contact your bow. And as that arrow is moving through the bow, after you release it, your front bow hand is the last thing to be contacting that bow. So any type of variation in your front hand will, will give that riser a predetermined direction. And that's going to affect what that string is going to, how that string is going to carry that arrow forward. Um, the next thing is going to be your shoulder position. So 
again, your shoulder is critical. If your shoulder's not down and forward to where when you're at full draw, you look like a perfect T. If it's up and and high to where you you look like a T with a bump in the top of it, that's going to be a problem. And it's especially going to be a problem if you're trying to shoot dynamically by pulling through a release with a back tension. Um, the fourth thing is going to be your anchor position. So your release hand is the first thing to determine the path of the arrow. So where you anchor on your face and how that anchor relates to arrow pressure on your face and the direction of your release hand as you let go of that string or when the release lets go of the string, what that rear hand is doing is giving that string its very first characteristic of how it's projecting. So the anchor position, absolutely critical. One of the, especially now as bows start to have higher and higher let off, um, the higher your let off, the more play you could have with your string at full draw. You know, if you have high let off, you can pull back and you can kind of bend your string around. There's not a lot of string tension at full draw. All the pressure is in your cables, not your string. So if you have your chin pushing on the bottom of your arrow shaft, or if your chin is contacting your fletchings, or you're drawing back where that string's on the side of your nose and you have string all down the side of your face, well, someone that has more facial naturally is going to have misdirection in that arrow flight right off of the release. Um, the next thing is going to be just your head position and how you look correctly through your peep sight. Um, I'm a big advocate of making sure the string is always right at the tip of the nose and not down the side of the face. Um, so just having your head in a perfectly erect position, but just pivoting towards the target, just as if someone grabbed the tip of your baseball hat, that little bead on the top and just turned it towards the target. That's how your head should be. It should just be turning. It shouldn't be going forward to the string and it shouldn't be climbing back behind the string. So those types of things are really the main critical components to what we teach for getting people set up in proper posture. And then from there, it really goes into the next step, which is having a release that allows you to focus on pulling through the shot dynamically versus pulling through a trigger. That's as a longtime shotgun guy, man, that pulling that trigger, that's it's, that would be hard for me to get away from. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a killer. It's the, uh, it's the culmination of everything you've gotten to that point. As you're talking, I'm like, man, I'd really like for somebody to take a look at my stance. And I'm thinking, you know what? Maybe I don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, uh, I thought it was a major step when I got somebody really good to tune my bow. Holy smokes. Now it sounds like I got a whole nother seven, <laughs> seven or 12 step process. So, well, yeah, I mean the, the shot process is very simple. I really boil it down to six points, you know, stance, grip, shoulder, anchor, peep. And the last is, pull and finish, just pulling through that shot and finishing. Now, one of the things that you said that's absolutely true is most people that grow up don't get a bow first. Like, you know, at least for me, the first thing I got was a little 410 shotgun. And, you know, we'd go out, my dad would 
you know, had a little hand thrower and would throw oh, some yeah. clay targets and, and Hey, from at least for me from age five or six, I was trained to freaking get that beat on the target and freaking hit that trigger. And that's always been for me, one of the worst disconnects for archery is that the index finger release that fires from your index finger touching it off it there's way too many of us that relate exactly like you do to right. being on that trap range and pins on target fire pins on target fire um you know and what we've done with the releases that we've created um we've actually taken that out of it so there's two releases that we have that are strictly based off tension and they're they're actually um one of them anyway the silverback plus is pretty much a customized version of a release that i worked with jerry carter over a decade ago when i told him what i would love to be able to have to coach these students that i have which at the time I was coaching a lot of national teams. I said, I would love to have a release where the finger was totally irrelevant. All the finger did was engage or disengage the safety. What I want people to do is I want people to just focus on pulling harder against the back wall. And if that thing would just go off with a surprise, I said, it would be, it would change archery forever. And so Jerry actually had some, some ideas there. And we worked on the very first release that had that, which was the evolution. And over the last decade, we've made, I've made some different tweaks and then also changed the, the fingers um, to where I have less fingers on the release because I believe in less fingers on a release simply because just like grabbing a recurve, if you grabbed a recurve with three fingers or four fingers, you have way more ability to manipulate your your fingers and change pressure on it, which is going to change impact downrange. So by just using two fingers, your anchor position is so much easier to acquire and your ability to change rocker position on the release is greatly minimized. Now, the other thing, um, and that handheld release was or is probably one of the 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 biggest changes for people learning to shoot archery the white right way and that's that's what i started coaching all of my students with and honestly when when i started coaching rogan um that was one of the first things that i did was i showed him how to shoot that release and got him shooting it and then instantly his archery completely changed forever. Now, two months ago, we, we launched a brand new product that unfortunately we've had three, three big, um, drops now, and all of them is sold out, you know, within a day, but we, we actually just, um, patented what I refer, what I call the back strap. So this is a wrist strap release that's activated with tension so this wrist strap release is very small same size as all other wrist strap releases you're probably used to um it's got a wrist strap that ha that utilizes a boa system so it, it's comfortable and easy to to you know to repeat 
how it fits. But the way it works is you draw back just like you would any other caliper style or wrist strap style release, and you'll anchor the way you do and look through your peep sight. And then once that happens, you'll get your, your pin on the target and the trigger is made just like a two stage AR trigger. So you have to squeeze the trigger and it'll take slack out. And once you've taken that slack out, what you've actually done is disengage the safety. And from there, the only way that it fires is when you can continue to pull to a predetermined tension against the back wall. And once you pull to that tension, it'll fire with a surprise shot. So depending on your skill level, it's got an adjustable, it's got a little adjustable set screw that allows you to set the firing tension anywhere from 10 to 40 pounds. Um, and so what I teach people to do is to draw their bow back and measure what their holding weight is on their bow. Simple math. If you have a 70 pound bow with an 80% let off cam, you're holding 14 pounds. And I tell them to start out to be anywhere from four to five pounds over their holding weight to set that release to fire. So you'll set that release to fire at, let's say 18, or it should come out of the package approximately 19 pounds. And so people can just get in the habit of drawing back, getting on the target, squeezing that trigger, trusting their float. And at first you're gonna have some anxiety with that, but you have to keep pulling and pulling and pulling until, it, until you reach that 19 extra pounds and it'll fire. And what people find is, with a compound bow, when you're dynamic and you're continually pulling against the back wall, it actually has way better accuracy than when you're shooting in the valley of the cam. Um, so people naturally get better at that, but also because of the fact that they really don't know when they're going to reach that tension for it to fire, it forces you to trust your pin to be in the middle. Cause so you're, you're making your pin be in the middle. Cause you're like, damn it this thing might go off in a second if I'm pulling right, or it might go off in three. So you really, if you freeze under the target and try to pull through, well, you're just going to shoot at the bottom of the dot. And it has changed. Like I said, we've had three, three big um, drops that we've put on the website and every one of them have sold out in a day. And I've got some of the best, target shooters in the world right now um one of them shot a 30x 300 with it plans to take it to vegas uh it's it's a game changer because just like for you the index finger is this is the devil of any archer in my opinion because this thing can do whatever the hell it wants and it rarely listens to what you know your your conscious is telling it um, it has a mind of its own. It's the most sensitive flange you have. So it knows every drop of pressure you're putting on it. So it knows just how much you can put on that trigger before you want to swack at it. Um, or it knows, you know, not to be anywhere near it and to take a swing at it. So both of those things are things that I used to do, which, led me to losing all my arrows at that first 3d shoot <laughs> what do you say to the guy who actually does use an index finger release correctly right. freaking dude i'll <laughs> you need a trophy high five you know i i, um, I, I did i didn't either that's why i switched to a back <laughs> engine but but you know you hear guys say I hear guys say, well, I shoot it correctly. You know, I, I, I pull back tension and that's what makes it go off. And I'm like, well, you're, 
You say you do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, I'm a trigger slapper, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, what, I, what I will say is that a lot of people who thought that the most comments that I see for people that post either the Silverback Plus for people that are handheld release shooters or the backstrap, the amount of people that I see that make a post, the majority are saying like, if you really want to know what your flaws are, this will tell you. And there's a lot of people that said, oh yeah, I can, I squeeze every trigger. And then you give them that and you watch them squeeze it and flinch off the target. And then you're like, okay, well now you got to pull through. Um, but I also tell people, listen, there's, there's exceptions to every rule. And as a pro archer, um, listen, when, when I shot, like I told you, when I shot my, my index finger release back then, I had days where there was no one out there that could beat how good I shot when my timing was on and my lifting and punching was in sync. It was, you know, freaking deadly, but there's also days where I was embarrassed to even have people watch me shoot. Um, but I will say through my professional career, there has been a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's probably a handful, maybe, maybe two of pro archers globally. You know, there's, there's some from specific countries that don't have very good archery programs that were very self-taught. There's always people that have a terrible closed stance, but they're still awesome archers. And there's people that, you know, there's guys that have shot a wrist strap at every professional tournament. And well, there's one that, you know, from Italy, you know, um, Sergio Pagni, a freaking amazing archer shoots a wrist strap. Um, there's been guys that shoot, you know, hitched at the waist, arrow bent, shoulder high, string all down the face. And they win a lot of freaking tournaments and world championships and set records, but they also are, you know, these shooters, there's not like, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like if you, you know, if you say Michael Jordan, you don't compare them to someone else. Like Michael Jordan was Michael Jordan. Kobe was Kobe LeBron's LeBron tigers, tiger. These people that I'm talking about, they there's not other ones like them on the pro circuit they learned to shoot a certain way and they perfected it but what i will say is most of the ones that have in my opinion um less than desirable technique almost all of them do have one thing that really separates them and that is their ability to still shoot a surprise unanticipated shot even with incorrect technique or you know or sometimes incorrect equipment the fact that they trust that float and they're waiting for that surprise shot however they make it happen that's what really separates them and, and puts them you know puts them above the other people in that category i was going to ask you when's the next big drop of that backstrap it's a good question. <laughs> I have, I'm the worst person to ask if something is in stock or even when my friends say, Hey, is there any way I can get a deal on such and such? I'm like, I have, is it in stock? I really don't know. I just, honestly, I focus so much of 
what I do on really creating engaging content, content that can, that other archers can engage in and get better on. For example, like I just started, um, last week, I just started a new series called plan of attack. And this is going to be an, an, an eight week program on several things that you can do eight specifically eight things that you can do to be better at the total archery challenge events, because those tournaments, in my opinion, are probably the most important tournaments in domestically for sure in the U S for bow hunters to really get better and, and to be challenged with every aspect of archery. Um, and then also just not having the pressure of a scorecard. I just love that aspect to it because so many people shoot better um, or so many people are more themselves when they, they don't feel like they're being scored. And I feel like what happened, and this happened when I shot professionally too, when I first started shooting professionally, there was three times the number of professional archers in the men's open pro. But by the time I retired, we were down, you know, 50, 60% easily in numbers in that class, simply because other archers realize the same five or six people win all, you know, win 95% of the tournaments. And it just got to the point where people weren't wanting to donate money to someone else. And so either they would, you know, drop down to a lower class or they would just start shooting local tournaments again. And I just love the tact format because they're very tricky shots. You can shoot with whatever group you want. There's no scorecards. Um, and they're very, very, very technical, which I think is what really lets people know where they're at with archery and, and honestly, I feel like a lot of people like me like things that are challenging. So when you go and get, you know, your oil checked at some of these things, it, you want to be better the next time you go. So you start to work on things that maybe you didn't even know were a problem, or you just start to try to do things that are a little bit more difficult. It's uh, I haven't been to a, to a tech course, but we've, uh, we have the Pope and young world record course at the mountain archery festival events. And that's been, been going over pretty well. Now you mentioned, you mentioned Joe Rogan there. And, uh, you know, I often tell people Joe Rogan is like the biggest success story, not because he's done more than anybody else in archery, but, but everybody got to kind of watch him take that step. And, and, you know, then people said, Oh, I can do it too. I'll try it too. Um, who, who would you say your biggest kind of success story is? Oh, that's a good, I mean, to me, my biggest success story is my son and my wife. Um, because Sharon and Harry, you know, both were from England when I met them, I was over there competing in a world championship in Europe and, and met Sharon on a plane and, uh, and both of them came from England where hunting, you know, isn't even legal and had certainly coming from Liverpool had never shot archery or guns or been in a hunting situation. So, you know, when Sharon and Harry moved here 
um, and moved to Wisconsin with me when we first kind of got going, or at the time I was just doing DV hunting DVDs, Sharon would go with me, um, just cause I couldn't afford a camera person. And she just, she wanted to be there and, and hang out with me. So she would go hunting with me and film, you know, just film my hunts. And then, you know, it got to the point where, you know, she was like, Hey, I think, you know, I think I'd want to try, um, I, I would, I wouldn't mind shooting a pig or a turkey cause they're, you know, they're uglier type thing. And so I took Sharon and Harry both from never even pulling a bow back to, you know, to literally taking them and just teaching them totally the basics. They both of them learned on that tension based release that I told you about. So from the very first arrow they ever shot was with a handheld tension based release. And that's still the exact same release they shoot now. Both of them have, you know, from, from an average bow hunter that isn't, you know, that, that has limitations to, to a budget and, you know, where they're going uh, and also like limited limitations to like time that they can go hunt. Um, they've been really successful. And honestly, I don't, I don't think either one of them have ever lost an animal if I, if I'm remembering correctly and they've shot dozens and dozens and dozens of animals between the two of them. And both of them are with, you know, short draw lengths, 40, 40 or 45 pounds max, um, tension based releases. And it's just been, it's been very, very like, from a boat, like from a Pope and young or a bow hunters point of view, it's been as ethical of a story as possible because, you know, they started out just using a string and an attention based release and learning how to anchor properly and pull through. And then I gave them a bow with like a shot simulator on it. And during commercials, they would pick up the bow and they would each shoot for two minutes with this, you know, with this, um, with this like, you know, bow simulator. And then, then we started shooting outside and we, you know, we only shot 20 yards and I told them, you know, you're not going to make a shot unless it's 20 yards or less with a bow. And both of them had, you know, lower poundage. So they had cut on impact points. All shots needed to be broadside or quartering away 20 yards or less. Um, the very first time we went turkey hunting, I had them. I set up a blind in the yard, put a turkey target out there, got them used to shooting, sitting down, you know, made sure they were only pulling enough weight that they could draw back while in a seated position, had them shooting out the blind windows at a, at a turkey target and really taught them, here's where you aim, you know, and I would turn the target. Okay. Where would you aim now to have them? I'd point with my finger and they'd say, yeah, right there. I'd put a little sticker there. Yep. That's exactly where you'd aim at this angle. And then, um, the next year, I think they went, uh, hog hunting. So we put a tree stand ladder stand up, had them shoot with a safety harness, shooting at a hog, you know, down on the ground. The next year they, they really wanted to go bear hunting. Actually that bear right behind me is my wife's, you know, it's a, it's a Boone and Crockett. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and, you know, for me, the best success story was taking these people where, they had no history in archery or bow hunting. Bow hunting wasn't even legal. 
and have someone that comes to the States and realize, you know what, there's like, there's a, a valid reason why hunting is necessary. Cause Sharon told me, she's like, you know, we, we, there was a few neighbors that hit deer with their cars and she saw like in the winter time, how many deer were trying to eat every piece of grass showing around the house because they couldn't yeah. get any food anywhere else. And just the sheer numbers. And she started to realize like, you know, and she went bear hunting with me and, and saw a boar, you know, eat a cub. And, and so she mm. was just like, okay, yeah, I, you know, I, I realize what why people hunt and also 80 percent of what we eat is is wild game stuff too which that has always been the case so um i really feel like that's the best story because that's such a a perfect model for bow hunting especially with this new demographic that's starting to to see bow hunting a lot more publicly and there's a lot of people that have a problem with it but there's a lot of people that have an open mind for the first time. And obviously Joe, I think is the biggest reason of he is, he literally laid a bridge down that no one in the, in the hunting community would have ever built. Yeah. That at least lets people that have nothing to do with hunting and a big portion of our brand are people that, want to learn archery for the very first time and they're coming in to learn the basics and they want to learn the ethics of this this sport that we have and i think that was the perfect you know just the perfect student because it shows every aspect of you know i never even shot a bow and now both of them are you know this past year sharon wanted to go out um she came up to me like on november 3rd or something and said hey i i you know i want to I might want to shoot a deer this year. So I said, all right, well, let's go out and practice and dropped everything and went out. And believe me, when she, she can set her bow down for four or five months and pick it up and then just right back. If it's 20 yards, 25 yards, just pounds it, you know, and it's the same release, uh, same poundage. And so I just said, all right, well, let's go. And she ended up, you know, killing 150 inch deer at, 21 yards, you know, right behind a, a, a hot doe and, you know, and was able to just make a perfect shot pulling through with the, with the surprise release. And I just think that's like the perfect model for, for what bow hunting should, should really, should really do for, especially from a starting point of view. Absolutely. Hey, you know, Dylan, I think I may know what his answer is going to be. I, I, I might do. Yeah. John, we, we have a question that we ask. I, I love hearing these stories and especially about new, new, uh, bow hunters where, you know, I was, I was introduced to it from the time I was born. So it was just natural for me to go hunting. So I love hearing about the new, new hunters, but one of the things new hunters and old hunters alike enjoy is, is hearing about things that, that the folks who are out there doing it like to have with them. And we have one question we ask on every podcast we do. And that is what's one thing that you take with you on a hunt in your pack that might be a non-traditional type of item that, that you wouldn't want to be out there without. Oh man. Um, a non-traditional item. I'm hearing back tension release, Dylan. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I'm never leaving without without you know. If you leave without a release or a rangefinder, you're gonna have serious problems. Um, I don't know. That's a. Well, I, I'll tell I'll tell a quick story while you think about it. All right. Uh, I was we were hunting at a at a place, and it was only about an hour and a half from my house. And uh, my brother in law was I don't know fifty yards from me, and. Uh, and I pull back on a deer and about halfway through my shot, my release breaks, like it internally messes up. Oh, dang. And so the arrow fires and sticks in a tree right beside that doe. And, uh, <laughs> so my brother texts me. He's like, I heard you shoot, man. What'd you get? And, uh, and I, you know, I told him I shot a tree, but, um, luckily, and that's one thing I always keep is an extra release. So I ran back to the, to the truck, grabbed my extra release and, and <laughs> went back hunting. But, uh, yeah, that was a, uh, that was a funny one, man, because that doe looked right at that arrow that hit the tree and then ran off. Dang. Yeah, I don't know what the what the single thing would be. I mean, I would say a release, a rangefinder, butt wipes, and a peanut butter jelly sandwich. <laughs> like, like <laughs> there it is. <laughs> those four things are coming along. You can get through a day on that right there. <laughs> yeah. Have you, so, ever tried, well, have you ever taken the you ever taken the little kids uncrustables? That's what I do. Dude, I buy four boxes every November every every like October 30th. I'm at Costco just getting four boxes of those suckers. That's and what I take. Putting there them in you, my fridge, man. There you go. Now that now that's an answer right there. Uncrustables. My wife <laughs> keeps telling me, my wife keeps telling me, Dylan, you gotta let the kids have those. And I'm like, no, I don't. Those are mine. Yeah. Well, I will tell you though, I think it's highly possible to rattle in a deer with that wrapper though, because <laughs> Uncrustables has the loudest wrapper known to man. You got to know in a Ziploc bag. You got to take them out of that package, put them in a Ziploc bag. Yeah, I normally, I normally take because mine are normally in the freezer, you know, and I take them out and put them in a in a paper towel, and those things are like right in my my little top pocket. Um, Love it. I actually yeah. found one. I was, I went out late season hunting, um, between, I think it was new year's Eve actually. And I went out for an all day sit and it was freaking cold. And I, I've was freaking starving and just started digging through. I've got two backpacks. One backpack is like when I hunt tree stands. So it's got, um, like a camera arm and kind of my tree stand stuff and then my my blind backpack has it always has like a black you know outer zip a pair of black gloves in there and and then it has a tripod strapped to it so you know if i'm going to a blind i just grab that backpack and and it's ready to go but i forgot to like put anything in there and so I was digging through that sucker and I found an uncrustable from like the year before <laughs> and I ate it and it, it tasted like, like a powdered wolf turd. It, it was horrible, but I had to do it. It was totally necessary. You know, I've, I've had some granola bars that were, I don't even want to know how old, but I don't know about one. So well, well, John, we really appreciate you coming on today and spending some time with this. I know I've actually learned quite a bit just listening, and yeah. I think I may need may need to up my game a little bit. So, well, one of the thing, one of the things I'd love to I'd love to say, um, you know, and one of the reasons I was excited to, to podcast with you guys is, um, to be honest, I've I'm not a score person. 
Um, I don't score anything or register anything I've ever shot. Um, just because, you know, just like even that same mentality transfers for me over even into target archery, you know, I love things where people have fun and, and more people do it. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes score for the, for the right or wrong person changes that a little bit. And, and, um, you know, and I know some people shoot a deer and waiting for that first Pope and young certificate. And then they realize what net means <laughs> and, you know, get freaking crushed. Um, however, what I will say is, you know, I'm, I'm a very big advocate of people within our community supporting organizations like the Pope and young club, or, you know, I'm a Boone and Crockett club, you know, member, um, so I'm, I'm active with, with those guys and, and, um, you know, really I was nominated there by, by friends, um, to, to be with that club, but just, um, you know, even, even when I moved to Iowa, you know, I did, I got a lifetime membership for the Iowa bow hunters and just to support those causes. And, and likewise, you know, the first time I went elk hunting, realized I love hunting elk and saw the initiatives, you know, the Rocky mountain elk foundation and, you know, got a lifetime membership for that too, to help support that organization. So I just want people, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of people who already are with the Pope and young club, but there's also times where those renewals come up and people should really look at what, what they spend in some places versus what they could do to support organizations like the Pope and young club or some of the others, like I said, and, and it's just critical for me to support these things because, you know, behind me and off to the side are you know, a lot of, a lot of like memories and trophies from international competition and one of the things that I'll tell you, like I told you with my wife, we need to be very, very careful here in the U.S. in understanding that being the ability to bow hunt is a privilege. It's, it's not, you know, this isn't a guarantee. And many of the countries that I've been to have been fighting to legalize bow hunting for as long as I've been there in early 2000s. And in some of these countries it is simply not legal and it's probably never going to be and there's also countries where they had legal hunting and they're continually getting suppressed and in some cases taken away and so we really need to do our part in sending a great message you know make sure what we post are tasteful pictures um you know don't get in a a an argument with someone in their post because you think it scores two inches different than theirs. Um, we're all bow hunters. We're on the same team and more so than ever, we need to support every organization that's fighting for what we love to do. Absolutely. And it's, that's one of the things as we look forward to what Pope and young, you know, this is our 60th anniversary. And when we look at the next 60 years, the pr protection and promotion of bow hunting is the part that you're going to see a lot more, you know, we at a bigger level and we're going to get, there's a tax every day and, and we're there. People haven't always known we were there, 
but that's that's one of the communication pieces we're trying to get out is that hey when there's an attack on bow hunting we've been there for the last 60 years and we're going to continue to to and increase that moving forward so yep yep yeah well john once again thank you so much for being here i hope to do it again i you've inspired me to go try a back tension release because as, <laughs> as a certified trigger slapper um i you know i may i just have to check it out i, I hey, just have to do it at least so, he yeah. it, john at least i, I he know it. I, i'll be waiting for the next drop so if i see the email i'm gonna jump <laughs> online dylan if you see it before i do you let me know because I'm, I'm in there yeah, just so. YouTube, uh, YouTube knock on, knock on archery backstrap release, and you'll be able to see some of the you know the little videos I show on how how it works, and I think it'll answer a lot of questions for you as well. Sounds real good. real quick before we go, John. You got YouTube knock on archery. Where do they follow you on Instagram and Facebook? Uh, Facebook, I think, is knock on. Uh, Instagram is knock on TV, uh, but the website's knockonarchery.com. Very outstanding good. well you heard it here go check it out and uh thanks to our guest john dudley for making it today we appreciate you being with us definitely learned a lot and uh until next time sir thanks guys appreciate uh, it thank you